Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is disruption in container logistics with my friend, John Murnane. How's it going, John? I'm doing great, Joe. Thanks for having me. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. I'm glad we're talking about this topic. Please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Well, my name is John Murnane. I'm a senior partner at McKinsey. I, um, I'm based in Atlanta, where I am today, uh, on a beautiful day in Atlanta. And I lead McKinsey's uh, logistics sector globally with a, with a colleague named Martin Yors, who's based in Humber. Very nice. Very nice. So tell us, tell us a little bit what, what you guys do over in that uh, McKinsey's logistics, what do you call it, logistics practice? Yeah, we, we call it a sector, but you know, we, we, serve the, we serve the logistics industry. Right. And, and, and for us, that, that's all the different interesting, fascinating parts of logistics. Right. So basically throughout the global supply chain. So ocean and air, we serve carriers, forwarders, folks doing container leasing, marine services. We do a lot of work in ground handling and transport, terminal operators, uh, dray, uh, rail, truck, both asset based and, and brokerage. Also do a lot of work in warehouse and fulfillment. Right. I serve uh, companies that operate fulfillment. Uh, I serve a real estate industrial developer. We also do last mile, post and parcel returns, plus all the folks that are in and around that space doing data and transparency and tech and robotics and all the fascinating, fun uh, companies that are that are trying to knit it all together. So do you work more with shippers or more with the actual uh, logistics providers? So we, at McKinsey, we, we work with both. Right, the the group I lead, the logistics sector, we we serve companies that make a living moving stuff around. Right, I've got a number of colleagues in a practice that's adjacent to ours that that are is in manufacturing and supply chain. Right, and those those consultants and those partners serve the big retailers and manufacturers who pay to have the goods moved. I don't know what you guys did at McKinsey, but it wasn't so long ago that. There was no logistics practice. It was logistics and supply chain or supply chain and logistics or manufacturing supply chain and logistics. I was always the tail end of something else. And yeah. I think we've, we've arrived, guys, because we have a McKinsey partner who is responsible for watching over us. Well, we've got 100 <laughs> McKinsey partners that are uh, – I don't know if we're responsible, but we're trying to we're trying. – Somebody's got to watch us, John. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This, this 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 business needs some babysitters. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before before you joined McKinsey. Grew up in California. Actually grew up pretty close to the ports of LA and, and Long Beach, but did not get into logistics at a young age. I was a mechanical engineer at Duke. I worked in entertainment for many years at Disney and the NBA in finance and business nice. development roles. Uh, which was a heck of a lot of fun. Still a big NBA fan. Not as entertaining as logistics. Not as much fun as logistics. No, <laughs> no, of course not. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, actually, when I got into logistics, it was it was uh, at McKinsey. I went to business school at Michigan at Go Blue, Go Blue. and then I um, joined McKinsey. And you you joke about sort of logistics being the end. I mean, I got recruited into the travel and logistics practice because I knew a thing or two about travel. I started serving logistics companies 
back in the day. This is, uh, you know, 2003, 2004. It wasn't sexy. You know, logistics wasn't quite as hot as it is today, but I found the work fascinating. I really liked the people. I got into rail, I got into parcel, I got into trucking. And then I moved to South America to lead our logistics practice out of Chile for three years. And then I got oh, really wow. into the ocean space and, and marine terminals. And, and I, I've just been hooked ever since. And obviously, it's become more and more fascinating, given sort of all the things that we've seen in the last 10 years from the e-commerce boom to uh, automation to the push for sustainability to you know what, what's happened with the pandemic. Yeah, well, I think it's fantastic that you've got that South America experience because I say this a lot on my podcast. I feel like we've had so much stuff in China for so long, and I'm not nothing against China, but it makes more sense to ship stuff from Mexico or from Latin America. Latin, we'll say South America in general, not just, I guess Mexico is North America, but yeah. we don't do nearly that much business with our South American partners who we fully understand compared to China. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, we do they're in our time of, zone. Yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> ag coming in and out and, and a lot of air freight and, uh, and obviously a lot. I was in Chile, which does a lot of flowers and salmon and, and, and of course, our exports a ton of uh, copper and, 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 and minerals. But, you know, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. Yep. So. Let's talk about the topic today, which is disruption in container logistics. So why don't you take us back to before there was this disruption? Talk about back in the day, pre-COVID, way, way back about 30 years ago before COVID hit, what was going on in the space? I like the question, you know, and look, I'll go 10 years ago, right? You know, you're hearing a lot about underinvestment in infrastructure and our sort of failing logistics infrastructure in the U.S. I, I used air quotes for those that are just listening, right? But like, you know, I, I think that, you know, 10 years ago, things were working well, right? I mean, you know, if you were a manufacturer or a consumer, you you probably had the, the lowest cost supply chain in the world in, in North America that was able to get you product from anywhere in the world at most any time. You know, the, 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 the cost was quite low and the supply chain was really run very well and smooth. And, and as such, I think it was something that a lot of people took for granted. If I could add one thing to that, it seemed very opaque compared to today, though. I mean, 10 years ago, if you're moving freight, your stuff was uh, disappeared on the ocean for three weeks or a Fair. month. <laughs> yes, yes. It was also opaque because no one looked into it. Right. I mean, we've all learned how important it is. And 10 years ago, I mean, I'll tell you, I, I used to serve clients. I did a lot of marketing and sales work, helping people with sales and pricing and things like that. And I served clients in logistics. And, I've, I, you know, I remember hearing, you know, sales executives kind of complain to me that, look, I, I can't I can't make these value based arguments. I can't talk about, you know, our value prop because I, I can't get access to anyone that matters. Right? I'm, I'm right. sort of Nobody talking cares. to a procurement leader in, you know, four levels down and, and, and they don't care about our value. Right. And, and so I think it, it was opaque because to some extent there wasn't engagement on this topic at, at the, at the highest levels. And certainly there is now, but anyway, I, I'm, I, I digressed a bit there, Joe, sorry. 10 years ago, you had a, you had a, a well-run, extremely cheap North American inbound supply chain. The, the infrastructure didn't get worse overnight, right? But the pandemic hit us sort of three ways. One is we all started buying a lot more stuff, 
right? We didn't we didn't spend any less, and we stopped spending on travel and restaurants and things like that. So I think no new car, no vacation, but I can buy crap online. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and by the way, I can I can upgrade my house. I mean, I I did some of that myself. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm in the house more, and I'm going to invest in in doing some things around the house. You know, maybe I get a bike, you know, an indoor bike to to stay in shape. But we spent a lot more money on stuff. 20% more money on stuff. Which was, which was I, I, I always call it not your grandparents or great-grandparents, pandemic. 1920 pandemic, 50 million people died worldwide, and there was poverty. I mean, we joke, on the, I've said a few times, like the, the COVID-19 or 20 that we gained from sitting around eating, buying stuff. And not, not to discount all of the misery that it brought, but most of the misery was just isolation for us. Yeah. But when you have a situation where you, there, there's that much more volume being purchased, obviously that means more containers being moved. That means more trucks to move it. You know, at the same time, I think global kind of capacity fell by about 15% over a similar time frame, right? I think maybe 14%. But and 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 if you if you've been paying attention, that 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 probably feels intuitive, right? I mean, we had. We had people that were sick, and so we couldn't staff, right? We, we had operations that were shut down at times. You know, we had congestion because people were stacking and storing containers because they couldn't get them to the next place, and so they were waiting. And Nobody to so, unload it. <laughs> correct, correct. You know, I mean, at, at every stage in the in the value chain, right? I mean, we, we all saw the earnings releases that talked about, look, I've got, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 65% short of the team I need to operate these warehouses. And so they're open, but they're not, they're not running anywhere near at full capacity. But so, you know, 20% up in demand, 15% down in supply, right? You got a congestion problem. And then on top of it, those increases weren't smooth, right? I think if those increases were smooth, our logistics industry might have had a chance. It was overnight. Might have had a chance, but it was overnight, and then it stopped, and then it started again, right? And so, you know, that 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 really, you know, that that really made for some 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 challenging times, and 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 you ended up getting what you got, which was, frankly, pretty poor service, long long lines, congestion, delays, uncertainty where things were, and then you also had price increases because. Uh, the companies that were moving the goods were, you know, trying to yield manage to make sure that they were at least, you know, taking good care of the of the clients that were willing to pay the most. And so it really became challenging for our for our shippers. Right. And and I don't think it hit the biggest shippers, the Home Depots, the Lowe's, those guys, they had contracted rates. They call on the bat phone when they call the shippers. I mean, the shipping companies, they didn't all of a sudden get, you know, double or triple the cost of a container. They had that they were okay. It was a lot of the other smaller players. And, you know, you mentioned this spike, 20% up in demand, 15% less in capacity. But I think it also, if if you were 20, 30% off in your headcount in your consulting practice, you can, you can, you can address that internally because you're all a team. This was across a really, a whole bunch of supply chains that are spread out across the world and the oh, communication yeah. was always kind of difficult given time zones languages lack of the computer systems so the coordination and the the, the fixes were all slow yeah you're right i was talking to my daughter yesterday and she's in portland 
she's was excited. She called and said, the couch that I ordered in October is going to be here. Yeah. And she said, I forgot what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, I think we're all getting used to waiting a little longer than we used to. But uh, they're, they're, it's nice when they arrive. So we had all this. And, and, and by the way, we still seem to have these shocks every once in a while. I know Shanghai has had a more COVID. Yeah. And, and I think here in the U.S., we're seeing shortages of headcount in a lot of places, especially in, um, I think, warehousing, dock workers, always trucking, of course. Just a lack of, lack of uh, capacity when it comes down to it. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I know everyone wants to know and figure out when is this going to be over. I mean, I, you know, it, 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 I, don't, I don't think it's going to be overnight, partially because, you know, I don't, I don't think the disruption is going to be over soon, right? I mean, the fact that right now we've got basically almost no trucking going on in China, despite, I mean, the ports are open, the the manufacturing plants are open, but the trucking operation is pretty much ground to a halt, which means we've got just days and days of inventory that are going to, you know, stack up and and then need to be pushed through the system. And so I think that the disruption and uncertainty is going to be part of our new normal. You know, I, I think as as with regard to when does the average demand get back closer to where we used to be and when does the average supply get back closer to where it used to be i think that's just going to be a matter obviously of consumer spending and and labor you know we we love the idea of things normalizing and getting to a new normal but right now we're seeing inflation and other problems um we're seeing the the war in the ukraine we're seeing a recurrence of issues in china with covid but i would also say we have trade issues with China. So I think in a lot of ways, the new normal is not normal. <laughs> yeah. I think the new normal is going to be change because of events outside of our control, whether it be, you know, weather or or geopolitical. But I think change is going to be more prevalent in the coming you know, decade than it was in, in the last few, right? Which, which is why, to some extent, I think we did have that false right. sense of security that everything was working because we did have a period of, of relative sanity, which allowed us to fine tune the system despite its, its uh, you know, insufficient, insufficient infrastructure. Yep. So we talked about the way it used to be pre-COVID 10 years ago even, and uh, what happened. So what, what's next? Well, I think, I think what's next is, 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 recovery in terms of I, I do think that in time we would expect to see supply improve in time we'd expect to see consumer spending on goods you know moderate moder- moderate a little bit I mean we are seeing an increase in consumption on services which makes sense because you know there's there's the ability to do that my wife's in travel and she's never been busier I think people are eager to get back out and travel again. Oh yeah, and so you know, but I think I think those those are the two things to watch, right? I don't think we're going to see the end of events and and discontinuities, but the two things to watch to tell us when congestion is going to moderate and when prices are going to moderate are going to be consumer spending on goods in North America and labor availability. Yeah, it's great, crazy time still is what you're telling me. So so talk about those shocks when we were um, prepping. We talked about all these. And again, I think there's many ways we can describe this. We could say our supply chains got a little brittle, right? Meaning they they broke rather than bent, right? 
Another way to describe it is we just have too many risks in there or we, we lack resiliency, depending how you want to talk about it. So talk about, we know we're going to have some more shocks in this system. How do we deal with all that? Well, I, I think there's a few things, you know, and, and a lot of this is ongoing. I mean, it's already happening. But, you know, I, I think we need to stop looking at supply chain as a simple commoditized part of the operation. It's, it's not a simple cost center. It's, it's not something that should be, you know, just managed by, you know, the, the, the small team in, in procurement focused on, on the cost lever. I mean, this is a C-level topic. Right. Supply chain is and forever will be now, I think, a C-level topic. You know, shippers need to be thinking about all the things that they can do to accept the fact that, I mean, the, the, the logistics industry will probably always be more complicated than it used to be. You know, part of that is more safety stock. I mean, oh, the old no. just-in-time, I know you're an auto guy, right? The old just-in-time math kind of assumed a you know, simple, easy, commodity-priced trucking and logistics operation. And, you know, the world's more complicated than that. You know, certainly some companies are looking at how can I think about de-risking my supply chain, both in terms of lo- number of locations that I source from to increase the number so I have more flexibility. If I lose one node, they're looking at nearshoring and reshoring. Those, the, the math on those deals is never easy. But, you know, there's, they're, they're, they're certainly spending time thinking through that, especially thinking about that in light of new sustainability targets, right? All of my clients are hearing calls from their clients who are hearing calls from their customers to say, you know, how can I be more sustainable? How can I meet the new carbon aspirations? Yep. So you hit a whole bunch of topics there. I want to break them down a little bit. Sorry. So no, no, I appreciate it. I think it there, it just speaks to where we're at in this business. So the first thing you said is this is no longer a small decision. So when I used to sell logistics and supply chain services, I would call and the way I sold mostly less than truckload and some truckload, cool. but we had technology. And I remember I would call and I would say, I want to talk to the owner, if it's a smaller firm or the CEO or the, at least the head of operations or a general manager because I would always say we impact finance because we're going to do we're going to take some of those functions away do it as part of our service we interface with the sales guys because they're the ones who are always saying where's my stuff right right obviously we work with your ops team on the inbound and we work with your logistics team a lot of times when I would call that C C level guy they would say oh talk to Tony and back right and then I go see Tony and Beck, and he didn't want to have a strategic discussion. He didn't care if the finance guys had to audit the bills. I said, "Well, we audit the bills because we have a TMS," and I start my whole spiel. And he'd be like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a parody of this a little bit," but he's like, "Yeah, those guys got me Kid Rock tickets. They got me Red Wing tickets. Whatever, whatever that that that's why he bought from that logistics company." And he didn't care that the sales get, no, he cared, but I was going to say, he didn't have that strategic focus that I wanted my customer to have. And and John, I, there's a lot of people who sell, who listen. And one of the things we've all been through when you you call that guy and say, look, I want to manage all your freight. I want you to use our technology and you're going to see all of your shipments in there. And he'll go, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you an Excel spreadsheet with all our loads in it. You put your price in, and if you're cheaper, I'll give you those lanes tomorrow. Yeah. And and I was like, yeah, but you, you, look, I don't want to save you 50 bucks on tomorrow's right. load. I want to save 10% on your annual spend. And, and it'd be like, 
What are you talking about? Like, and to your point, that's that's yesterday. And by the way, the number might have used to been we spend five hundred thousand dollars a year, which is bad enough to leave it to uh, somebody who doesn't care about the strategic f- function of logistics. But now, as that number got to five million, now you go, what the hell, guys? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think you're exactly right, Joe. I mean, and and there's a lot of change on both sides of that transaction that I think we're going to go through over the next few years, right? Because, I mean, you're right. I mean, I I I got a good friend who's a former CEO of one of the container lines, and and he's you say, John, like enough with this value base. I lose customers for fifty dollars a box, like fifty dollars a box, <laughs> oh, you know. And and it doesn't matter how much better we are. It doesn't matter. And, and, and that was the, that was the history, right? And in that world, I think you don't have the right executives in the decision on the shipper side. You don't have the head of sales. You don't have the head of marketing. You don't have the head of operations, right? You have someone in procurement. And when you have someone in procurement, they have one metric, which is how can they get the unit cost down, right? And then you, you, you also need to get better on the sales side. I mean, the guys that I work with, the carriers, the the trucking companies, the railroads, you know, they they now have an opening, right? They now have an opening to say, you know, see, it wasn't so commodity based, but they've got to be able to deliver. They got to be able to go and articulate what what they do that's different than the next guy and and why that's why that's worth it. Yep. And this has come up in the past on my podcast, and I always use the same analogy. Back in the olden days when we had stockbrokers, Stockbrokers were transactional, and they they wanted you would always hear the term churn. They wanted to churn your account. Hey, John, I want to sell your Dell stock, and I want to move you over to Apple, right? And and they make money on both those transactions. Those guys all they didn't care about your overall financial picture. They cared about what you had in your investment account. Now we've moved to financial planners. You don't hear anybody saying they're stockbroker. Financial planners are aligned with their clients. So they say, we're going to get paid one or one and a half percent of what you have in your account. So I want to make you really rich so I can get one or one and a half percent of that every year. Same thing in this business. We have to switch out of this transactional thinking and move to that financial planner, to that that global. And, and I think a lot of companies want to do that. They don't want to be in the ringing the bell and having the siren go off that they made $1,000 on a transaction and celebrating at the office that day. That's a lack of alignment. And it's, it's, it's yesterday's news. Yeah, no, I think, I think the, you, you will see more and more kind of gain share kind of partnerships and relationships like that between carriers and shippers. Um, you know, but it, 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 takes, it takes real change on both sides. I, th- I think this will be the shock that 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 gets the awareness to a place where those things are pursued, not just between carriers and shippers, but to some extent between different players in the logistics chain, right? Between carriers and ocean terminals, between railroads and trucking lines, right? Between warehouse fulfillment operators and last mile, last mile parcel. Yep. So one other thing I want to touch on and just briefly is, if you guys ever, since we're talking about containers, we'll get more back to the containers for a second. We really started using containers a lot, I think, in the late 50s and the 60s. And yeah. that there's a book, I think it's The Box that Changed the, the World. The Box, yeah. But prior to that, we couldn't even do global global trade because the, the, cost of tra- the cost of logistics was so high. And so that was a tremendous innovation. We saw this. It changed the world. I mean... We wouldn't be doing nearly the global trade we do now and I, without it. But 
that seems as if that hasn't that model has we haven't seen a lot of innovation in that space. I know we now we're starting to see technology, the information technology. But we, I think that's another piece of that. So I, I speak to that. And, and while we're talking about it, because it's, it's, I think it's linked, is the sustainability that's so important to us. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the, the, the technology has come along in terms of tracking. It's, it's available. And I think you'll see more and more adoption of that, especially in the reefer space. But, you know, also, I think in dry boxes as well. You know, I've seen a lot of uh, of startups and investments in sort of foldable boxes and, and and alternative kind of equipment, things like that. You know, I think that's interesting. I mean, I think the main way we're going to get better sustainability on our container fleet is by finding you know better ways to extend their lives, right? You know, I, I think we. Don't oh, I never heard that. So we're throwing a lot of those out, huh? For sure. Right. I mean, a we're 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 losing we're losing track of a lot of them. We we lose track of a lot of them because we don't know quite where they were. And telematics and tracking and things like that will help there. But also, we're we're scrapping a lot. Of How them. long does a container last? I mean, you, you know, there are there are certainly containers that are out there that have been in the fleet for you know twenty some odd years. Right. I mean, I think the average uh, is probably closer to you know uh, twelve to fifteen. But I mean, there's there's all sorts of uses, not just you know, but but one one of them is you know used for for uh, alternative storage, right? But if anybody from the uh, container ship lines are listening today, give me a call. I will uh, I will deliver you fifty containers. I live about twenty five minutes out of Ann Arbor, and so there's some farms that had not not quite rural. And I always drive by, and I always think, what are you doing with that container? <laughs> Doing. Yeah, well, the and problem my, is they, they they only need them where they need them, right? And and just like our supply chain is sort of imbalanced, right? They, they, when when they need them to pick up, you know, soybeans in in, San, in Santos or in Sao Paulo, right? You know, the fact that they're in Ann Arbor doesn't help them a whole lot because the amount of money and time it's spent to get them down there. But um, you know, managing that global fleet better and extending the life would be great from a sustainability standpoint. Yeah, and I think you know um, it comes up a little bit on my podcast about sustainability. Is there's some people might be shaking their head, say, "I don't believe in the man is causing global warming." I always say, "I don't care what you think. It doesn't matter what I think. This is what consumers are asking for. A lot of brands are asking for it. So when when one of those big brands says, "What are you doing?" You better have an answer. And it's it's too late to do anything at that point. So you really do have to embrace it now. And I think there's a lot of small ways. So when it's over the road, we're just trying to get rid of empty miles. And that starts with measuring the empty miles. Yep. And which brings me to another point, John. I think we were, before we hit record, I think we were saying that 75, 80% of containers are leaving LA and Long Beach empty so it can go be filled up in China with more goods for us. And meanwhile, we have this shortage and you go, we gone mad? Yeah, I believe that number. I don't have the number offhand, but I totally. I've heard it from number. multiple people. Yeah, that that sounds about right. You know, and 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 it's an it's a illogical but understandable conclusion from the supply chain being an afterthought. And the supply chain has always been an afterthought. It's not designed. It's, it's just it happened, right? Right. I mean, there, there's there's many forces well beyond the global supply chain that decide. You know, what is our import export balance with China? And, you know, where, where do we manufacture intermediate goods for, for auto? And, and so, you know, once you get those flows, 
some of those flows, I mean, there's nothing logistics can really do to account for the fact that, you know, there's that much of a import export balance on goods, right? Now, you know, empty backhaul, empty miles within the US, right? I think there's a lot of things that the logistics industry can do to help We're think doing about that. smarter ways to reroute, right? Though there's still a lot of empty miles, even, you know, in the US, right? I think it's, it's funny, I, I've become more aware of this over the last year. There's, there's the empty truck that's moving from LA to New York and you go, that should never, ever, ever happen. But that is that, so we, I don't think that happens nearly as often as it used to, but I think what's even a more of a concern is, should be, but it's becoming more of a concern is the half empty trucks. And you go, yeah, I have, I had 10,000 half empty trucks leave this location. You go, guys, is there a way? And I know there's technologies and the guys over at Flock Freight and others are saying, hey, we can do something about that. And I think we're going to see more um, shared loads, more multi-loads, whatever you want to call multi-stop, yeah. uh, where we're going to say that truck is full and that's good for the environment. It's good for the trucker. It's good for the, the, the shippers. We're going to have to figure that out. We don't want to put, uh, I can't move your food onto a truck with, you know, auto parts, but um, we have to be careful about how we manage it with the shippers. But I do think it's good for it's going to lower the price of shipping, too. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that you know, w w once we're fully loaded with the real cost of all of this stuff, whether it be the the, the drivers or, or the assets or, or the, the new vehicles or the autonomous and electric vehicles that we bring in to make the more sustainable fleet, you know, the, 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 the cost per unit is going to be higher. Right. And I think it's going to it's going to put the burden on us to figure out how can we make better use of each of those units and figure out how to, you know, maybe it's two hours later, but that allows me to share a load and uh, and double my density on on the trunk move. And, you know, I think all of those things can happen in time, but it takes great collaboration between carriers and shippers to make it work. The data exists now. The transparency, yes. the tools <laughs> and the data exist to be able to do it. But it takes tremendous collaboration and trust to get it done. Yep. So I'm going to put you on the spot here, John. So I know you work with a lot of different companies. So I want to go just tick off some you know standard categories and what kind of work you're doing for these companies right now. So let's just say an over-the-road carrier calls you. What do you tell them these days? What, do you, what would be a typical project you'd work on with them? I mean, over-the-road carriers, we're doing a lot of work helping them think about how is their network going to change? Right? How is their network going to change as manufacturers figure out a new supply chain? How is their network going to change as we start to think about electric vehicles and ultimately autonomous vehicles? Not just how should you think about the timing of those technologies, right. but like, you know, what is what are the network decisions you're making now that you know will feel suboptimal um, in five years, in ten years? Because you know the investments that those companies make in in assets and infrastructure are are not short term. You know, I think we're helping them think about, you know, sustainability in terms of, you know, how can they help their their shippers with their sustainability targets? Right? And I think those are some of the big themes. Yep. So how about, do you talk to any brokers in 3PLs, non-asset based? For sure. Yeah. What are you doing for them? Well, I think a lot of them are trying to figure out, you know, how can I, you know, I mean, sustainability is a topic for them, for sure, in terms of how can I provide I mean, I'm already kind of helping them knit together. A lot of them are trying to figure out how can I knit together solutions across mode? How can I optimize those around sustainability targets? We're doing a lot of work uh, almost across the board in growth. So 
how do companies find growth? There are a lot of new freight flows that are coming, not just because there's always new freight flows that are coming, but sustainability and the targets that all these companies are taking on are creating a whole lot of new goods to move. And so we're working with a lot of companies, whether they be, you know, asset light, asset heavy, broker, truckload, but also parcel and, and the like. Like, where do you find freight? How do you get it? How do you leverage tools today to find those companies? How about how do you work with any final mile or last mile guys? We do. We 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 certainly work. We we I mean, final mile from a, from a from a pallet and kind of LTL final mile, heavy goods final mile. We do a lot of post and parcel work. Uh, we got a huge practice globally that has done tremendous work in in uh, in helping drive efficiency in in the postal space and and parcel as well. You know, I think they need it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean those those companies are struggling. It's a big shift. That's the from what I understand, the final mile for home delivery to goods the is the most expensive uh, part of the journey. So when I when I, I wasn't being uh, critical of the post office, I, it's it's we want it to be better, but it's also we put a lot of constraints on it, and then I think it is the the hard part. <laughs> right, right. Well, I don't want a pallet delivered to my house. And then right. have me distribute all of those pallets to, you know, all those parcels to my neighbors, right? I'd, I'd like just my piece delivered to my house. And so getting my piece delivered to my house is it's expensive, right? And, you know, it, the costs are, are getting better uh, relative to the, the pallet moves because the density of residential delivery has come up so much, right? I mean, 10 years ago, the density of residential delivery was terrible and it was really hard to make the economics work for the big parcel companies. As our volumes have gone up, that has improved the relative density, but it's still it's still tough. So what about warehousing and fulfillment? We've seen so much change in that space. What's going on when you work with them? I mean, you know, first of all, just permitting and getting sites is extremely challenging, right? I mean, the the the, the those sites have to, to be close to closer to us, closer to consumers. Correct. Yeah. If, if you want a site in the middle of nowhere, right? If, if you want the old model of three sites in the middle of nowhere, you can still get that. But if you want the sites that people want now, which is, you know, an hour outside of, or, or, or maybe even less outside of, you know, every resident in the country, those sites are hard to come by. Right. And so, you know, we, we, we do work with, uh, with, with developers on, on construction and permitting, you know, how to do that well, how to forecast and identify where the sites are going and where you need to be. But we're also working with operators on, you know, how to drive productivity in those sites. We're doing a lot of work on how to retain, well, re find, recruit, train, and retain talent. That is, that is, a, that is a theme across all logistics is, is, is that for sure. You know, it's interesting. Um talking yesterday to somebody about I think it was a, a paint company and they said we don't have anyone retire from this location and it was their DC and the problem was the reason they had no one retire from there is because it was a young man's game it was you didn't want to walk 10 miles picking stuff up moving stuff around and I think that's that we have to make that job in the warehouse easier we have to make it so you're not breaking your back. I'm an automotive guy. Yeah, it's a hard job. In automotive, I used to see, if you walk by an auto assembly plant today and walk through it, you would see that nobody was doing a job that was backbreaking or that required excessive strength or crouching or reaching. We've eliminated those. And I think you're seeing that same 
mindset move into fulfillment. Those guys are going to become technicians rather than just strong backs. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we've obviously, I mean, I, I, we've had conversations for years about technology in the fulfillment space, but now it's happening, but now (laughs) it's happening. Right. And I think they kind of made fun of us, you know, five or six years ago because it was sort of early and no one had really proven all the economics and it was sort of whiz bang, cool stuff, but is it really having impact? It's really having impact now. I mean, there's certain functions that are you know, being largely automated and, and you're seeing really high ROIs. Also, you know, you got a lot of technology now that's more flexible than it used to be, right? Building the, the, you know, $10 million conveyance system just for this client and then hoping you retain them. That's a scary proposition for a fulfillment operator, but, you know, having, having flexible robotic assets that can move seasonally or, or move to a new facility. If you lose a client, we're also seeing longer contracts, which really help right? Fulfillment operators are saying, look, I, I don't want to do a three-year deal. I, I can't, in a three-year deal, I can't make the investments in technology. I, you can't facilitize for that. You can't build a location if necessary for a bigger customer. Correct. And you can't put those, because we're talking robots now. And this is the same as, again, this is becoming somewhat like automotive. In automotive, what we learned is the, if you give me one year, I'm not going to invest in it. I can't. Correct. And, you know, the, the payback cycles on some of those uh, technologies are, are getting shorter, but it's hard to make many of them work on a three-year contract. But we are seeing a lot of fulfillment players and, and, and manufacturers uh, agreeing to five-year deals and seven-year deals or, you know, agreeing to co-invest in the technology that they want to really offer something that customers uh, can't get elsewhere. Right. So let's circle back to the beginning. So what do you talk to about with the container people, the guys with the ships and the rail and the drayage, the, the, I guess the, the modal? You know, I mean, I, I, think, I think from a, from a container line standpoint, you know, a lot of them are trying to figure out, you know, how can I better facilitate end-to-end, you know, shipping? Now, I don't know if I want to own all those pieces of the operation, but how can I better facilitate end-to-end delivery because you know it doesn't do me a whole lot of good to get it to the port if it sits in the port or much worse it doesn't do me a whole lot of good if i'm sitting at the pilot station waiting to get into the port so a lot of the conversation a lot of the work today in the container space is how do you collaborate with the terminal how do you collaborate with the the rail operation how do you collaborate with the consolidation deconsolidation facility to get boxes and get them back so the whole concept of end-to-end is probably strongest when you think about container, terminal, dray, rail, truck, figuring out how to create more seamless, how to create more partnerships, how to share data to do that. And some of those are, you know, you see the, the Maersks and the CMAs of the world that are investing quite a bit in buying companies to knit together that offering. Right. They're buying over-the-road companies here, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I think they made an extra hundred billion dollars or something those ship lines. Yeah. So uh, during COVID, so I think they're investing in, to your point, that end-to-end solution. You know, I wouldn't be surprised. And again, somebody said, said this to me the other day, and uh, they they work closely with one of these companies. They said, "Don't be surprised if we see single-use containers because." When the containers are all going one way, we do have a trade imbalance with China. If that container is only going one way and I have to ship it back on a boat that is filled with containers that are empty, somebody might say, well, why am I shipping it back there? Well, because these are expensive containers. 
do they need to be expensive containers? Could they be less expensive and single use? Now, I know somebody's going to say, what about recycling and all that? There's a design that has to happen here. That's why we got people like John and his team there. They'll figure it out. <laughs> I'm going to write that down, John. I'm going to follow up with you in six months. All right. I'm <laughs> but it seems to hear to- about that. That sounds tough. But from my perspective, we, we see it in automotive. Sometimes you ship the containers back to the, uh, the the containers that brought your stuff. Sometimes you don't because it doesn't make sense because it's one way. But um, what about air freight? Do you guys work with air freight companies, the airlines? We do. I mean, obviously, it's been a, a huge challenging and, and, and rewarding uh, couple of years for air freight. I mean, the, the belly players, it's been tough because they haven't had, you know, the majority of their capacity with many of the passenger lines, uh, much of the passenger capacity down. The pure freight players have have, have done uh, extremely well, but everyone in air freight, I mean, air, air freight was a key enabler and one of the early winners in the pandemic and, and continues to be. You know, I, I, think, I think the questions on air freight are, you know, a lot around how can they use advanced analytics to drive even better forecasting of volumes and therefore even better service levels and yield management. You know, we think there's a lot of opportunity in the air freight space around advanced analytics and and, and pricing. Right. And by the way, just please confirm, I heard this not so long ago. I think I heard it from Flexport and I heard it from the guys over at Freightways. Um, 1% of all overseas volume is on, on air freight, but it's like 30% of the value. I should say uh, revenue. Yeah, because it's just so it's so it, what it speaks to is you're not shipping auto parts usually on a plane. You're shipping electronics, chips, medicines, stuff like that. That is high value and small. High value, high yeah, mostly high density, right? Value per 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 cubic foot is is uh, is off the charts. Th- that ratio feels approximately right. And I think I also heard that fifty percent of that stuff is in passenger planes. So it's in the when you get on a passenger plane, fifty percent of the air freight is passenger planes. Yeah, that I mean that is why that is why air freight prices absolutely skyrocketed. You know, they, they, we they weren't flying up, anywhere. Yeah, they, they moved up first. You know, I mean, obviously, container ocean container rates have 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 skyrocketed too. But the the air cargo, first of all, it is. I mean. It, it, when, when, when your supply chain breaks down, at some point, the only option you have is air to, to get it there, right? Right. And so it is, it is the, the, the last resort for a lot of things. And it is the first resort for the really high value cargo. You know, a lot of companies will send the, you know, for the release of the phone, they'll send enough phones for the first couple of months via air. And then they'll send the backup, you know, to refill stock via ocean. But, you know, in a pandemic, it's, it, was the first, it was the first choice. And yes... You know the, the 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 majority of the global air freight capacity is belly of passenger, and when so much of our passenger fleet was grounded without anyone to pay for the international kind of passenger move, you lost the belly cargo. Yeah, I heard somebody use the term "prater," which is passenger freighter. So they took <laughs> seat seats uh, sometimes took yes. the seats out of planes and filled them up, and other times they put stuff. The seat that you might have been flying to a conference on now has got a stack of mobile phones on it. Correct. Correct. So I'm going to try and summarize all this, John, and then I want to get you some final thoughts. And then I want, before you go, I want to hear what's new over at McKinsey. So 
John took us through, and again, the topic today is disruption in container logistics with my friend John Murnane. And John talked about the steady state. So we'll talk about 10 years ago, pre, pre-COVID, if you can remember such a time, and what happened during COVID, that horrible time with demand spike, capacity down, sick people, broken supply chains. We learned how brittle our supply chains were. We t- you talked a little bit about what's next, you know, where where is consumer spending going, seeing more service we're spending more on services, a little less on products. We're going to see how the industry reacts to what are still shocks and aftershocks of what happened. And again, we don't even know what the implications of the conflict in the Ukraine and inflation. And we're going to, I think we're better, but uh, <laughs> we will see. And then last, we talked about what we learned during this time, that logistics isn't a commodity and that we really have to insist upon a seat at the table, so to speak. We no longer be just a commodity service. And then John took us through all of the different things him and his team do with their clients. Final thoughts on this big topic, John. We've been talking so much about e-commerce. It really, I I think it's going to be omni-commerce, right? I mean, you've seen a bit right. of a drawdown, a, a correction back. You know, we talked about 10 years of, of e-commerce acceleration in, in, in two months. And, you know, th- that, that was true. But, I mean, in the last quarter, you've seen brick and mortar make a, make a comeback. We want to leave the house sometimes, John. <laughs> we got to leave the house on occasion. You know, I mean, some things are better bought in person. I don't get when some my, my kids bought mattresses online and they're like, oh we love it and and then I was like how would I I'm gonna have that mattress for like ten yeah, years yeah I have to lay down on it I gotta I lay down get, on it right I'm not gonna look at five thousand reviews and so yeah I'm with you like I don't I I love e-commerce but to your point I think we still like I think some of those shopping experiences are gonna have to become experiences, not a pain yeah. in the ass, experiences that you, everyone wants to go to the farmer market. Everyone wants to go <laughs> to a cool boutique. We have to get back to a cool experience if I'm willing to leave the damn house. <laughs> yeah. And I think for shippers, I think it would be, I think many of them want to get to a place where they're they're managing more an omni-commerce supply chain. I mean, one of the most painful moments of the pandemic was when we saw that we have inventory that's obsolete, you know, or one of the most frustrating parts of the pandemic was when we had out of stock items on the website and obsolete items sitting in storerooms in the retail centers, right? And and that was so painful and was a function of having two supply chains, which is the case for many, many shippers. They built their old brick and mortar supply chain. Then they added a supply chain to do e-commerce and they didn't really talk to each other, right? And so I think you'll see companies now figure out how do I have one more flexible omni-commerce supply chain? Because there are going to be some variations, right? And you know there'll be times and products where you want to buy online. There'll be times and products where you want to buy in store. And certain companies will have a blend of the two. And I think that's where we're going on that front, which we didn't talk about, but I think is important. I think it also needs to be designed. It has to be created. It can't be, to your point, a bolt-on because we bolted on the gig economy and thought that, well, cool, we got an e-commerce solution. Instacart and Shipped and some of those those solutions for grocery buying, from what I understand, the grocery store companies are losing money on those and they obviously don't like that. So they're going to create... And, and I would also say the gig economy stepped up. It's great. We're always going to have it. We're always going to use it in logistics. But it needs to be 
managed by logistics guys who are operational experts who are good at routing who are good at technology it can't just be yes you know bob down the street buys groceries for the neighborhood it it, it doesn't work as the way it needs to so i think we're going to see those grocery stores become grocery stores slash fulfillment centers in some yes. cases or maybe the maybe one fulfillment center in the detroit metro area that serves or maybe two that serves all of the e-commerce some of those business models will evolve, right? I mean, so, some of the early iterations of, you know, and, and even, even a company as great as Instacart, I mean, some of the early applications are, you know, there's adding cost on the top of the all, already existing sort of flow and retail and brick and mortar and all that stuff. But you're right. You know, the, the, the ideal way of doing that is to have dark stores that are designed for efficiency and, and pick up, pick, pick, pack and ship and not for, you know, the, 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 the grocery experience that we've all grown to love. <laughs> right. So, John, let's wrap this bad boy up. But before you we, you go, uh, tell us what's new over at McKinsey and how do we reach out? So also, if you have any webinars coming up, conferences you're going to, case studies. Yeah, I mean, the best way to get in touch with us, um, I mean, the, we, we just love to have conversations, right? And the best way to get in touch with us is on our website. You know, I'll it's put the a link in the show notes. For, for content, it's the best way to go to reach out. It's easy to find me or, or any number of colleagues. And you, know, you can send an email and we'll respond. If I'm not the right person to talk to, I'll probably get the email. If I'm not the right person to talk to, I'll find someone who is. <laughs> but check out the website. I mean, on the site today, we've got an interview with Sane Monders, the COO of Flexport, which is great. And uh, we're putting up content all the time. What I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, John, and a link to uh, whatever links you guys give me, Dr. Robert, and they can reach out to you there. And so what conference are you guys going to? What conference is the next one we're going to? I mean, I know we're excited about TPM next year. When is that? TPM is uh, is in Long Beach in in the early early spring every year. So it's still a long ways away. I don't know what the next conference we've got in. You're going to have to help me with that one, Robert. <laughs> what I'll do is any conferences you guys are going to, I'll just put in the show notes. Give it to me afterwards. And okay. so you guys can reach out and talk to John. And yeah, I've just, I, I, the reason I ask is because uh, a lot of people go into, so I got all these people I was talking to were going to manifest and I didn't go. And now I'm going next year because everyone's like, oh, you didn't go. You should have gone. And uh, I should say also, we have coming up in May, Northwest Arkansas is having the. Uh, I saw that one with Freight Waves guys. Freight waves is having. Yeah, I just interviewed a professor from University of North University of Arkansas, number one supply chain school, Carney Gartner. So, anyway, John, I'll put all that in the show notes. And thank you so much for taking the time, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. It was really a pleasure talking to you. Look forward to keeping in touch. Yeah, yeah, it was my pleasure. And uh, thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.